Good evening and welcome back to Editing Aloud in a week of high drama with Gavin Watson crashing out in the early hours of the morning, a day before he was due to appear at a tax inquiry. Natural or unnatural causes? Claudia Malevich, what is your take on this one? Well, you can always have a wild conspiracy theory, but we don't have the autopsy outcome. So as I'm somebody that is in general driven towards facts and not um, <laughs> uh, wild conspiracies, even though I do want to indulge in them, um, officially he's died in a crash. We'll have to see what was the actual cause of death. Um, I know there's a lot of conspiracies and stuff about like, is it even Gavin Watson that, that died? But um, if I had to go on the information of um, Mandy Wiener from News 24, she said she did see photos of the man's like, body in the um, wreck. So, yes, that's about Seems as far as I can get. Look, yes. yes. conspiracy, not a conspiracy? You know, like, people are always going to have conspiracies. I don't think, I mean, they're still having conspiracies about Tupac today, you know, so you never know. <laughs> you know? But, I mean, like, you know, we actually just do journalism here, and we have to just take, take things at first value until we know otherwise. I mean, there's been a lot of journalism, so-called journalism out there, sort of inviting conspiracy theories, the suggestive headlines that don't actually give you any, any evidence or even any, or even any hints of why you should think one way or the other. I mean, until we know differently, we just have to assume, as Claudia says, like what we know, what we think we know is what we know is, is actually the truth. <laughs> Rob Rose, conspiracy or car crash, the real question really is what does this do to investigations into state capture in which uh, Gavin Watson was allegedly hmm. quite heavily involved. What are the, cons yeah. the implications of this? Well, he was painted as the kingpin of the Basasa bribery network. Um, so you'd imagine that it's going to be pretty, it's going to retard the Basasa investigations. He wasn't, interestingly, one of the seven people arrested in February. Um, but that was, that was relating to bribes paid for uh, depart correctional services um, contracts dating back more than a decade. But nevertheless, Gavin Watson was central to this. So I think in terms of that, it's, it's, it's going to set back the Basasa investigation specifically. Um, and I think that's the issue is that there's a lot of frustration out there. On the conspiracy thing, interestingly, I, I mean, I, I remember covering Brett Cabell uh, in 2005. Indeed. Um, yeah. And at that time, people thought, well, you know, it's, it is what it looks like. It's essentially a guy who's been hijacked on a bridge in Joburg and, and he's been killed. And then it turned out that there was actually a conspiracy in that case, that he had organized for himself to be, to be killed. So occasionally, very occasionally, you know, conspiracies do happen. But I suppose you need the evidence to suggest that. And in this case, there's no evidence to suggest there's anything more than a car crash. Claudia Malevich, going back to the state capture, I mean, the Bosasa theme goes all the way back to the, the correctional services stuff many years ago to the much more recent uh, funding of, of, of CR17's campaign. What are the implications for any of those investigations of Gavin Watson not being there to testify? So the first thing is um, Angelo Agritzi went to the State Capture Commission and effectively made where the State Capture Commission was mostly focused on the Gupta family. Then, of course, made Vasasa and the Watsons take center stage there. Um, but the issue now is we sit with somebody like, such as Angelo Agritzi who testified and he made the allegations, the video is there of Watson counting out like I think something like two million rand in cash in the office, which was the video famously displayed at the State Capture Commission of Inquiry. So that is there. And then there were other um, Busasa staffers who also testified. But now you have that side of the story. 
the Gavin Watson side of the story will not be told. He won't be able to be put on the spot. And in a sense, in that way, that justice and that clarity which you would have been able to get um, from such a process, it's done. It is what it is. What Angelo Agrisina said, that is the side. What about the rest? And that's the clarity that we unfortunately will not be able to have. And even if you look at the Zondo Commission this morning, um, Deputy Chief, Ju Chief Justice Raymond Zondo dealt with it before they went on to the rest of the proceedings. Um, they had actually served um, Gavin Watson with a directive but to his lawyers, but of course they have not received anything back and now it's... And now they never will. Look, yeah. Anya, what are the consequences and implications mean, I, of that? I think, I think Claudia just, just alluded to it. I mean, a lot of the stuff Akritsi said, I mean, they all made great headlines and they dominated the airwaves for, for weeks. But essentially, most of it is actually hearsay. There's very little physical evidence of any of these things. It's only one person's side of the story who actually... And as far as I know, so this was supposedly the kingpin. Now the kingpin is not here to confirm or deny that he was the kingpin. So you can just imagine, unless somebody out there does actually have proper evidence that can actually be tested like independently. Like, so it does set us back in the sense of actually getting into the truth of it. I mean, some of the stories that were told there, I mean, they, they, some of them just sound so wild. You, you just can't believe in it. People Couldn't would, have made them up. You know, it's <laughs> like, you know, if you, if you, if you did, did a movie script and you had that, people might say that's not realistic enough. And mm -hmm. this stuff actually happened, it's supposed to have happened. So. But now we have no one to tell us whether yeah, it did no. or it didn't, Rob Rose. I, I mean, interestingly, he was going to testify at the SARS inquiry starting it's, the day after he died. So then he would have actually been tied on to a version. He would have been able to say, I didn't do this, and this is what actually mm -hmm. happened. So... In a, in a sense, the car crash was the absolute worst timing in terms of getting a version from Gavin Watson about what happened. Now, like Lacanya says, we have hearsay, and that's pretty much all we have to go on in that case. Talking about the funding of the CR17 campaign, which, which was also somewhere where Gavin Watson knew the story, if there was a story. Your cover story this week on the fin in the Financial Mail, Rob Rose, is uh, Ramaphosa at war. Can you tell us what what you're saying and why? Well, I mean, essentially it says that Ramaphosa is at war. He's been fighting with the fight back campaigners, um, but he doesn't seem to know it. He doesn't seem to be acting fast enough. Um, and, and it also asks some hard questions about the fact that as much as there is a fight back campaign against him and his opponents are using the donations, are using these various factors to, to try and hobble him, um, it, it wouldn't have necessarily stopped him from doing things he promised to do a while ago. So it asked some fairly critical questions about that. For example, the issue with visas that he promised to fix last year. Uh, and we haven't had those highly skilled visas happening like they should have happened. All these things that should have happened, um, there are many factors that, that just he hasn't got around to doing. And that's hurting our economy. And I think that the issue is that we have, we have a reform, a country that desperately needs economic reform, and that, and that isn't happening fast enough to be able to, to make a real change to our trajectory right now. The ESCOM issue has been kicked, kicked down the, the road way too long um, for, for the country to be able to sustain. Look, Anya, do you have a, an explanation for this paralysis? Really? You know, like, maybe it's maybe, maybe distracted maybe by, by all the other things, that, that's why he doesn't do these other things like as, as Rob, Rob, Rob is talking about. I mean, take the, I mean, the whole visa thing. Like, how long does it take to have to sort that one out, or even have the right minister in Home Affairs, because at the moment when you look at Home Affairs, it looks like more like a security you know, sort of like department that's actually set there to keep people out, as opposed to actually like to, to facilitate entry of people and entry of skills into the country. It's a total, seems like a mismatch between what it does and what the country needs. 
I mean, that doesn't recruit. I mean, I don't think the guys who are fighting back care about that kind of stuff. <laughs> no. I mean, they're hardly going to say. In other words, Claudia <laughs> Malovich, in other words, there is theoretically not such a big reason why I shouldn't be acting on at least some of these issues. Or is there something we don't know? So, I, I would say, like, something like the visas, you, you would have to sort it out. It can, like, contribute immensely to the economy, and that's why it was part of the economic stimulus package, if I remember correctly. But the other issue is, and this is something that we unfortunately have to take into consideration, the, the sheer mess the state was in about 18 months ago. I don't know how quickly you can fix stuff like this. If you, for instance, look at what had happened in the um, security cluster with regards to the National Prosecuting Authority, with the state security agency, which was effectively like uh, used for political ends by former President Jacob Zuma, allegedly, according to a high-level review panel. But um, it is important to take that into consideration. And in that sense, I, I have to, however, point out, and I do know from some of um, President Ramaphosa's allies have said this as well. If you look at Edward Kiesvetter's appointment as SARS commissioner, Tom Oyani being fired, there was a massive deal, Global um, Jiba and Lawrence Mukwebi's firing from the National Prosecuting Authority, a new MPA head, um, the restructuring of the, of the state security agency. Though, of course, that's still a work in progress, but those on the other side of the divide would say, well, indeed. So you're saying essentially, even if anyone who wanted to implement is stuck with a state, which is completely mm. yes. dysfunctional. Now, along comes a surprise and brand new policy paper from... Finance Minister Tito Mboweni, all of a sudden, late yesterday. Lucanio, number one, is this the time when we need a policy paper rather than the kind of implementation which, which Claudia is saying the state is mm. struggling to take forward? But um, number two, what is new in, 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 in I mean, the new paper? Like, I mean, I suppose maybe take it one step back. You know, we've had all this negative like headlines recently from about not rating. in business day <laughs> <laughs> no, not of course from ratings agencies low growth and all those things and people have been saying oh where's the finance minister and then and then it is the fact that he's actually come out and in he a, has the finance, it, the finance minister he's actually come up with a document that's actually like it seems to be well researched and well read. It probably wouldn't have taken him long to come up with that, like, with, with, with that document because he said it is in the document itself, it says it builds on the National Development Plan that's already been in, in existence for so long. So, and, and, and I mean, like, now, and Claudia and I were this function where, where, where Eno Kodungwana was speaking today. And he also even made the point that, that in the ANC, the, 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 the problem has never been policies. You can go back and look at all these documents from gear to. RDP, whatever you want to call it. I mean, the, the policies have actually always been there. The, the, the issue has always been the implementation and whether or not we've got the capacity and also got the commitment. So, like, so all these what things. What I'm wondering, though, Rob, is there's no point, I presume, from Tito Mboweni's point of view, in putting out a document at this point unless he's got something new and different to say. And there is at least gently a critique of some of the existing policy stuff. Now, I know we haven't had time to have a really detailed look at the document, but is this an attempt to kind of put back government back on track? I mean, I certainly believe it's an attempt to reaffirm the commitment to strong fiscal principles. Um, at a time when the state is moving the other way, we've had, we've had basic radical economic transformation light policies through the NHI, through the notion of prescribed assets, which is being discussed. Um, and, and there are other policies too where, to some extent, we are, we are not even looking at the, at the fiscally responsible the, thing to do. Or the so growth or the growth Absolutely. Driving. So, so this Thanks. essentially just reconfirms the, the, the growth trajectory that we need rather than the expenditure side, which the focus has been on how to use 
assets for NHI, and that's been a, you know, I mean, that NHI indicates that there are people in government who just just aren't thinking about just how we don't realize just how bad things are in this country. And I think, I think for Tito Mboweni, it's to say this is how bad it is. This is what will happen, and this is what we need to do to set ourselves back on on the right track. So, Rob, I think one one of the striking things about the document is 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 there's a if you like more realistic trajectory, yeah. saying mm. even if we did all of this, we would get an uplift of two to three percentage points of growth from where we are now, which is. Zero to one. In other words, is this a more realistic ambition than the kind of six percent, five percent that we've been thinking yeah. about before? Yeah, I mean, we've had. I mean, all these previous there have been five or six. There's Askisa. There's you know all the way back to Gear. We've had lots of them, and they all have, they all have wonderfully um, um, rainbow-like targets, six yeah. percent, and, and steadily we've been negotiating it down. So of course it's it's important to say that this is where we are, and this is a more realistic way to go about things. Um, but to some extent, it's. I think the the basic notion of this is to reaffirm what is needed to get things done. And there isn't much in that particular document about prescribed assets and NHI. Continuing our conversation about the economic policy document, which Finance Minister Tito Mboweni released all of a sudden yesterday. TJ Stradom, is this more or less likely to get investors to invest in South Africa? Well, I think more likely if it, if it can be implemented because I mean, he basically says there are a few easy fixes and those are the things that we should go for. I mean, uh, if you procure energy or if you, if you think of energy, energy options, I mean, why would you limit solar to a specific percentage if it's the cheapest form of energy? It also does seem to have much more of a private sector thrust uh, oh, yeah, and less of the sort of statism which we seem to have become very fixated on lately. Look, look, I think right at the beginning it sort of emphasizes this sort of this whole idea of some kind of like partnership, business and government and, and the role of the, of the private sector and then just manage energy but it also goes into the issue with the spectrum. It also covers a whole lot of other things. I mean there's a little, there's a little section there about retailers and like a, and, and, and exclusive leases but pity we don't have a retail specialist here or a property specialist. I'm not sure now what it actually means, but, 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 that, but that's, how, that, that's, that's how wide this remit has been in, in looking at, the, at these things. Like, like, like TJ, like everybody else says, I mean, I think the main issue, like, of course, will be in the implementation and, and, and also how much how, and how it's perceived by other people. In the, but, in but that, Rob, there's, there's in really the no reason yeah. to think this will, that, that, that the finance ministry's document will be implemented at all, given that it is a proposal and to the extent that it conflicts with existing government policy, um, it may be, as impl be implemented even less than existing mm. policy. But what is the politics around a document like this? Well, the thing is, we've had the NDP, and the NDP wasn't implemented because of concerns from various of government's partners and various factions within the ANC. Like, like the, the unions, for example, didn't like many elements within, within the NDP. So there's no reason to think that this um, far more private sector-focused policy would be implemented anytime soon. As a, as a, as a marker of, of where Treasury wants things to be, it's, it's fantastic to say this is what we want for an investor-friendly environment. But to assume that this will get ANC backing, particularly at this point, I, I think um, is making a, a, couple of, uh, you know, a couple of assumptions that might not hold, especially since we've seen the DA um, come out in strong support of this policy which is always a sign that, that um, friends the in the sides wrong on, places. The, on the left would not particularly like it. Certainly the EFF and those closely aligned to the philosophy of the EFF in the ANC um, have indicated that they would not, would not like this particular document. 
TJ, invest on the subject of investor yes. friendliness. You were at NASPERS the other day and yes. you spoke to the chairman, Kurs Becker, who had some pretty strong things to say about South Africa's competition regulation and how that was in fact driving investment away. Can yes. you tell us what he said? So he said it was retarding investment. And he said, well, I didn't speak to him personally. He was speaking at the AGM. I spoke to the CEO which, uh, and, and Bob van Dijk sort of colored, gave, gave a bit of more color about it. But it's, it follows on from a, from a We Buy Cars deal that they, they wanted to do a few months ago. And the competition authorities said, well, it should be prohibited. Um, the thing is, for NASPAS, it's, it's small money. It's, it's 1.4 billion rand. So in the bigger scheme of things, I don't think they're crying about it, but there's a lot of there's a lot of there's sort of a lot of pressure on on NASPERS and other South African corporates to show that they're that they're backing the new dawn and that yeah. they are you know putting their money in South Africa, um, especially something like NASPERS that that has it's arguably been the the most successful foreign investor of any South African company, and especially with them lining up to list this uh, process vehicle of theirs in Amsterdam, so. To me, it was interesting that that he would say that it, it's a forum where the shareholders actually decide on this massive listing. I mean, that the size of Naspers, and, and that's why it should carry some weight if if someone says it. I did a little little back of a cigarette box calculation before I got here. Naspers's size on the on the JSE now is all of the listed banks plus Anglo-American. So this is this is an economy on its own. And I think that's why it matters when the chairman of NASPAR says competition policy in South Africa is retarding investment. And, yeah, we, we actually want to put some money here. Rob, is, is this a broader problem with, competition, with a competition regulatory regime, uh, broader than just we buy cars? I think they have a very narrow way of looking at things. And certainly the minister, Ibrahim Patel, he intervened where he shouldn't have intervened in the construction company issues um, around, the, around the collusion and he put in place strict targets with, um, with the Walmart takeover of MassMart. And I think that there's, there's that statist philosophy that we talked about earlier, I think that's very prevalent in, in Ibrahim Patel's department. And I think that is not necessarily aligned to the philosophies that most corporates have in terms of investment. And I think they find it quite stifling. And I feel in an eco economy that's struggling right now, um, it's, it's, I, I don't think that the, the, the government leaders are thinking in a broader sense about what's really needed to, to spur investment. I think they have a very silent approach and they stick to that. And I think it's, I think Chris Becker was right. Look, Anya, we certainly say mm. we want investment. Do we, mm. are we, are we making it possible? I think, that, I mean, the one quote he made, you know, talking about the, I suppose, like, he, he sort of gave the sense, like, you know, you could picture this, uh, this idea of these bureaucrats sitting in their rooms, some in Pretoria, thinking very much insular. Whereas on the other hand, you've got this company, which is actually no longer a South African company anymore, which is like an international company, which has got options all across the world. And I mean, the, the thing about this would be that, that car, we buy any cars, they'll come in. That, was, that would actually be money coming into the country. Well, I don't think that was actually local money. So in a way, it was foreign direct investment that we said no to. <laughs> you know, for, for reasons that, that, that are still unclear. You know? so, so like, I think, that, I think the picture, like you know, that we, we say we want to be a global economy, and we want to attract investment. Uh, even like now with the Home Office, as we're making a point earlier, we want to attract people who are trying to attract skills. 
But in terms of what we do, in terms of how our, our governments and our departments, their, their approach is actually not in line with that, you know, that, that vision. We don't have a, that unity of vision which we talk about. I suppose you could argue it's the same like if you look at the UK and Brexit and the idea that they, they want to be like a, what do they call themselves, a global, global. British, you know, <laughs> you know those, those, those two things like fundamentally look totally opposed to each other and I think sometimes some of our policies will run in a similar sort of dysfunctional kind of way. But I mean, having said that, I mean, I do think it's important that we have good competition in our market. I mean, it brings down prices for consumers and I think that was one of the one of the reasons why our banks have been um, pretty uncompetitive for quite a long time is that its barriers to entry are quite big. So I think we should spur that. But I think that we need to have um, our competition authorities and, and regulators need to be more um, aware and more flexible when it comes to, say, you know, new, new, new companies operating in new areas where mm -hmm. in the technology space, you're either number one or number two in most countries or you're nowhere. So, so, the old, so the old inflexible ways of yeah, looking at, exactly. at issues yeah. I don't think work anymore. Especially the businesses NASPERS is uh, involved in. So e-classifieds businesses, if you're not number one in a market, yeah, you, totally. you, you'll be flushed out eventually. And uh, I mean, they, they made the same, Becker actually made the same sort of argument. He said his media, the Media24 division of, of NASPERS, when they compete for advertising revenue, they're not competing against... Uh, local other newspapers or local websites. Mm. They're competing mm. against Facebook and Amazon. Well, Google. Facebook and Google, sorry. So that's who they're competing against. I mean, so, so then where, if, if you consolidate local operations to compete against an international competitor, mm. wh where's, the, where's the competition issue yeah. there? Because the, yeah. He probably says the same way when like, all his local journalists worry about his pay package. He's like, you should be comparing me with some guy in Cape Town. You should look at Silicon <laughs> Valley. Ahead of Google and <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, looking at another South African company which went has attempted to go international, Rob, with somewhat less success, Sasol and its uh, Lake Charles project has gone apparently yeah, badly. Pretty I mean, it's badly off the rails. People are now calling it the Late Charles project as opposed to Lake Charles. It's in Louisiana, <laughs> and it is. I mean, I think it's two years late now, and it's it's forty five percent over budget. But the most embarrassing part of it is that. The South Koreans built their own plant right next door to where Sasol planted in Louisiana for a quarter of the cost, and it was done in, in half the time. Um, and they're going to produce more ethylene and more, more, more chemical products than Sasol. So it's just embarrassing that Sasol seems to have managed this particular project badly. Does that, does that, should somebody be taking the fall for this, TJ? I don't know. So well, you, you think the, the, the problem South African companies would would have in construction and planning would be typically South African things. You'd have South African labor issues or you mean planning it's issues. That it happens elsewhere. <laughs> At least this shows that management might also be incompetent in South Africa. So that's well, if there's something to take from this. But what's interesting is that supposed to be a positive. <laughs> so, uh, but, but what's interesting is, is I, I mean, the origin of this project is again, Sasol was looking at projects in the Waterberg from uh, around that time, and they, they just struggled with approval. So that's, that's the scary thing. They opted to go overseas because it was too difficult to do it here. Now, that I'm not even sure if it's published anywhere, but that, that I heard as a reliable urgent, urban legend. So let's uh, No, no, let's only, I, 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 yeah. I was following Sasol at that time. It's only yeah. at the time. It wasn't the same kind of a project, but, but they so, were but looking at, 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 mm. at putting money in South Africa. In Waterberg mm. at that yeah. time. Yeah. But I, I mean, the question, there is a question of can big South African companies who are already quite dominant in the market, will they get any space to expand? Okay. 
in any meaningful way in South South Africa? Or will they be deemed by regulators to be too big already? Lukanyo, do you get any sense mm. of whether there's space for the giants, the existing giants that we have to expand in the domestic market? I mean, our market in relative terms is actually quite small. I mean, to be fair, I mean, if you're a big company like on, on that scale, there's actually, there's actually limited room for growth internally and internally, even, in, even, if the, even, if, even if the competition authorities were way like you know totally like and as long as the economy is not growing yeah yeah, Yeah. i mean otherwise you could i suppose you could go back to the 80s where anglo-american owned newspapers and stuff because because you wanted to you know to to grow locally but i but i think now we know we're part of this global village now and then and we're actually quite a small part of it i mean if we are going to have a proper global company it has to be a proper global company and in the last couple of minutes that we've got Old Mutual and Peter Moyo, the story that oh. kind of never died. <laughs> yeah, it's a soapy. Is there a sense, it is a soapy, but is there a sense in which chief executives now seem to feel that they are entitled to their jobs, chief executives in the public and the private sector? Well, one of the things that's interesting is it's, it's not a normal employment contract that, that, that you and I would have. Mm. It's something very different. So that's, that's why it's so complex when it comes to this giving notice and whatever. So I think they look at the contract and they say, well, this... Yes, I can do what I want as long as you as you um, you need to follow the process. I mean, and and, and that's why that's why Rob yeah, it's not the CCMA in, in, or whatever. Just very quickly, I mean, I it seems there's fault on both sides here, and, and the damage reputationally told yeah. mutually is quite enormous. Reputationally, it's disastrous. I mean, the guy's been reinstated to his job. He's been fired twice by Old Mutual. Um, he's clashed with the chairman publicly. This would never have happened ten years ago. I mean, I don't understand how this could have happened. I mean, the egos all over the place must just be immense for this to have happened. And I wonder, do our courts even understand what they're doing, reinstating a CEO to a job, putting him back into a company where, he's, where nobody wants him? Mm. On that note, we are going to wrap it up for this week. Please join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud.